Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. Happy Father's Day to those of you who are dads. I know what you would expect me to do is a dad joke right now, right? That's what you have come to expect from me, but I've decided I won't do a dad joke. Maybe you'll hear a joke later on, but you know know when a joke becomes a dad joke, right? It'll become apparent. Pretty good, pretty good. That one was for free. Uh, But man, I'm so glad that you're here. Happy Father's Day uh, to all of you who are joining us uh, online. Thank you for making us a part of your life and your weekend. And dads, uh, we love you. I'm so appreciative of the dads in our fellowship. Uh, If there's one thing that I know that dads like, I think dads like comebacks. Don't they? I mean, it doesn't matter if it's uh, in literature, it doesn't matter if it's a movie, it doesn't matter if it's in sports. Dads like comebacks. Comebacks are inspiring. When, when you watch someone that you're rooting for, you know, take a blow and they, they go down and they face adversity or they face, uh, you know, obstacles, and then they overcome those things uh, to ultimately be successful. They, everybody loves a comeback. And dads especially, I know you love sports comebacks. I love sports comebacks. I, I'm sure that you know what my favorite sports moment is as far as a comeback. I know you know what that is. It was, of course, TCU coming back against Oregon in the Alamo Bowl, right? No, that wasn't it at all. But I don't have to go into that today. But we all love comebacks. We all love it. It's inspiring to us to watch people persevere. You know, they're, they're, they're going through all of these hard times, through all of this adversity. And that's why I love the, the, a phrase that I've heard about comebacks before is don't call it a comeback because we never left. Like the people are still there. The people are still there facing all of these tough times. And so you can't call it a comeback because they never left. They just overcame. They overcame the circumstances, the obstacles that they found themselves in. Now, every comeback has a turning point. And you know this. I mean, think about the movies that you watch that have comebacks in them. The movies that you watch, the music changes. The momentum begins to shift. And you begin to see the flashbacks. You know, this is when Rocky has his face down on the canvas and he begins to think about Adrian and all the times he was running and all the things. And then, you know, the moment changes. And then all of a sudden, that person that was facing all of this adversity begins to believe. That's where the turning point happens. You see, the turning point doesn't happen when circumstances change. The the turning point happens when a person decides to change their circumstances, when they begin to believe that this could be different, and they begin to start acting differently. That's when the comeback begins, and we all begin to start cheering on that person as the comeback continues, and we cheer them on until the comeback is complete. And you know what a completed comeback is. I mean, that's ultimate victory. And that's what we get to look at today in Ruth chapter 4. So if you would, open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. Today, we're going to finish our series called Unfailing Love, which we've looked at God's unfailing love for his people. God's unfailing love specifically to Naomi and Ruth as they've been overcoming tremendous adversity. 
If you'll remember back some of the adverse circumstances that they found themselves in, remember they've overcome famine, they've overcome death of loved ones, they've overcome poverty back in Bethlehem. All of those things have been going on and we've been cheering them on from the sidelines of come on, come on, you can do it, you can do it. We believe that they can, why? Because we know the God who has unfailing love for them and that he is seeing them through. But today in Ruth chapter four, we get to see the comeback complete. And so what I wanna do is I just wanna read verses one to six, and then we'll skip uh, seven to 12, and then I'll read 13 to 17. Just basically the big sections of Ruth chapter four as we'll finish our series today. So follow along with me. Ruth chapter four, verse one. It says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, and I'll go back and explain all this uh, to you later, the, the one who he had spoken of came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And so this man turned aside and he sat down and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here to those other men. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders and my people. If you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if you will not, then tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and then I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, well, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take then my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I'll go to verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son, which is a miracle in itself, based on what we know from chapter one. Verse 14, then the, woman said to, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, his caretaker. And the, woman, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And if you flip over to Matthew chapter one, verses five and six, that's where you find the same lineage. And we find out this is the lineage that ultimately leads to Christ. So may God bless the reading of his word. So you've had hints of this comeback coming all the way from chapter one. Remember, the comeback began when they came back from Moab, back into Bethlehem that they had left for the famine. And you started sensing that God was doing something when it says God had visited his people again in Bethlehem. And so they come back there and you see, okay, God is in this. God is watching them. We begin to believe God can do something for them. 
And then you find out in chapter 2 that they happen to be in a field that Boaz is in charge of, whom is a relative of Elimelech's. And you start going, okay, this can happen, this can happen. And then Ruth grabs the bull by the horns, you know, later on in chapter 3, and you start thinking, okay, this can happen. And God completes this comeback in chapter 4. But this chapter 4 hits a turning point that isn't based on a moment. It's based on a man named Boaz. That's, where, that, that's the one who helps the comeback be completed. It's this kinsman redeemer that completes the comeback. That's what it takes is redemption for the comeback to be complete. It's this person of Boaz. And so what I want to do is I want to show you uh, basically how Boaz ties the bow on the book of Ruth. And how based on what he did as he laid down his life for Ruth and Naomi, the entire trajectory of their lives is changed and the trajectory of an entire family line that leads to Christ is changed. And so on this Father's Day, dads, I want to give you some encouragement and hopefully some inspiration from the life of Boaz. Obviously, you're listening to the word of God and you're doing a great job of starting there. But hopefully this inspires you and encourages you to continue to lead your family in a way that impacts generations to come. Because that's ultimately what you want. You want that legacy that continues, but it only happens if you lay down your life, just as Boaz laid down his life for his family. And so I wanna go through, back through these verses and I'll show you just a few kind of principles that all of us can apply, whether you're a father, whether you're a grandfather, a father figure, it doesn't matter. If you're helping anyone try to grow in their, in your, in their faith uh, and go further and farther than you could ever go yourself, to push them, to propel them into the future, then these will apply. So we're gonna look at the, basically the life of Boaz through this chapter four. And I wanna show you how these spiritual comebacks are complete when they're built on people who keep God's word and keep their promises. When they keep God's word and keep their promises. Now remember, in chapter three, there, there was that scene there on the threshing floor. Um, a really awkward scene that I kind of tried to rush through so I didn't have to explain it. Uh, the context is very apparent to you. Ultimately, the, the moral of the story is that Ruth basically proposes to Boaz in a sense. She's like, hey, I want to be married to you. And he puts the brakes on. He doesn't act impulsively. He says, hold on, there's somebody before me, and I need to go check with him. And that's where we pick up. He makes her a promise, actually. And that's where we pick up in Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. If you look at it, it says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate. Now the gate was where all the business was done. It was the entryway into the city. This is where the city council would meet. And now he's got a quorum of 10 elders that he's going to bring around him. And they sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, spoken of to whom? To Ruth, back in chapter three. That redeemer came by. So Boaz said, and I love what he says, turn aside, friend. Uh, to colloquialize this, this is like, uh, hey, old buddy, old pal. Why don't you sit down here? You know, he's got a, a proposition for him. And uh, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And so the conversation begins. But all of this was prompted upon two things. First, that Boaz was keeping God's law. 
Remember, he has to follow through on God's law first and foremost, which means he has to know God's law. You have to be a person who knows God's law if you're going to keep God's law. If you don't know God's law, you can't keep God's law. But Boaz knew God's law, and now he's following through to keep that promise first to God. Not, for, not first to Ruth, that he was going to go and do something about it, but he knew God's law, and he was going to keep it to God first. You see, we've got to keep God's law before we keep our own promises. That, that's important. You've got to know his law first and foremost. Uh, I'll, I'll, let me give you an application of dads. Dads, you want, I know you want to be the best dad that you can be. In order to be the best dad you can be, the best husband you can be, all those things, you've got to be the best man of God first. First and foremost. God has to have your heart before anybody else can have it. That's what those folks need in your life. That, that's what Boaz had done. He had given his heart to God first before he could ever give it to Ruth. And that's really important because what that shows is a, he's building trust. And the people whom I, at least I'm gonna speak for myself, the people whom I trust in my life most, they have given their heart first to God before they've given it to anybody else. Because here's the thing, that, gives, that builds a relationship of trust and I know how they're going to act. And there are so many circumstances in our lives these days that, are, that, that have certainly been unforeseen and just unpredictable, that we don't know how people are gonna act. And so I can't always ask them, hey, how are you gonna handle that situation? But if I know that they're a person of God's word, then I know exactly how they're gonna act. I know they're gonna follow God's spirit. I know they're gonna let God's spirit lead. And that lays a foundation of trust that they're gonna keep God's law first, they're gonna keep God's commands, and then they're gonna keep their own promises you know, to me or to whomever. And that's really important, obviously, for us as dads. We've got to be a man of our word. I remembered a verse of Matthew 5, 37, where Jesus says, let your yes be your yes and your no your no. Just, just do what you say you're going to do. Man, our world would be a much better place if people would just do what they say they're gonna do. Just, fo just follow through. Just let your yes be your yes and your no your no. I've tried to live this out with my own children and uh, with, with Dax and Hayes, which is why the word that they hate the most is maybe. That, that's the word they hate the most. You know, dad, can we go do that? Maybe. They know what maybe means. They, they know that there, you know, I think there's three options. Yes, maybe, and no. They know those are two options. Yes or No you know, every, everything else, which is why if, especially Hayes, our, our four-year-old, I mean, if he wants something, he will just come up and he'll say, you know, dad, can, can we go do this later? And I'll say, maybe. And he'll just come up and he'll grab my face and he'll say, say yes, say yes, dad, say yes, just say yes. And he just grabs, I can't get away from him, but he just wants me to say yes. Why? Because he knows that if I say yes, then we're gonna do it because I want to build and instill that trust in him, that he can trust what I say I'm gonna do, and who is always faithful to their promises? God. That's why we've gotta be a person of God's law first, or God's word. I'm using God's law because we're talking about the Old Testament. But we've gotta be, God's gotta have our heart first before we can give it to anybody else. We've gotta build our promises to one another based on the promises that he makes to us and the promises that he shares with us, We've gotta be true to those promises, which by the way, um, just a Father's Day thought for you. 
it's never too late to keep a promise. You know, how fun would that be if maybe your dad, Lord willing, is still living and still with us and not with the Lord yet? What if he made a promise to you and you remember that he forgot it and you followed through on it? What if he promised to take you fishing somewhere and you said, you know what, Dad, we're gonna go fishing and you take him to fulfill that promise? What a cool thing that would be. Never too late to fulfill a promise. Don't forget that. Second, spiritual comebacks are built on people who accept the responsibilities as well as the privileges. Who accept responsibilities as well as the privileges. Remember, this whole thing is built on Ruth asking Boaz to be the kinsman redeemer. Now let's go back and and review real fast what the kinsman redeemer is. The chart, there's a great chart that was on last week's notes that I forgot to reference, so please go back and look at that if you need. But remember, a kinsman redeemer had three responsibilities. First, they were to care for the family's needs. Well, let me even back up. Why did they need a kinsman redeemer? Because the patriarch of the family had died. And the role of the patriarch of the family was to provide and protect, uh, provide for and protect the family. So if he's out of the picture, they need somebody to come in to help provide for the family and protect the family. And so now you go, okay, we need this. We need provision. And so the kinsman redeemer was supposed to provide for the family. They were supposed to buy the land. And you say, why, why is that? Because oftentimes a family that was struggling to provide for themselves would sell off the land so that they could have the means to provide food for themselves. So they had to buy the land, put it back in the family. Then they, they had to obviously carry on the family line, the, the lineage of that family. And so that was the, those were the three requirements. Now, what were the requirements that, that they, that's what they had to do? How could they even be that? Blood relationship, the resources to redeem, and the willingness, which is key. They had to be willing to redeem as well. And that's what we find here, is that the one who is next in line doesn't have the desire or the willingness to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Now, think, think about these circumstances. There's been a famine in the land. So these people are just now starting to get back on their feet. He, this, this redeemer that he's talking about here, he has just now started to get his household back in order. He's gone through an economic crash, dire economic straits. Now he's trying to build his inheritance back up for his own family. And he, when Boaz comes to him and says, hey, do you want to buy the land? He goes, yeah. I mean, I have an opportunity to double my assets immediately. I mean, who, who doesn't want to do that? And he goes, aha, there's a catch. There's more to that deal behind door number two. We find that in verse five. It says, then Boaz said, now the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, guess what? <laughs> you know, just wait. You get Ruth, the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And you say, why is this such a deal breaker for this redeemer? And the reason why it's a deal breaker is because he's trying to build up his inheritance that he's lost in the famine for his own family. Now let's say that he marries Ruth to continue that line and she actually has a child. Now she hasn't, she's been barren all for those 10 years that she was married to Malon. But let's say that she happens to have a child. Now his inheritance is split. Now he has to split it with all of the children that he has 
right now. And so there's a risk involved of if I marry her, yeah, I get the land, but I don't want to risk for my own sake and the, the, the family that I already have. And so he says, I'm not willing to redeem it. You do that. See, he wanted the privilege of having the land, but he didn't want the responsibility of caring for that other family. And I think there's a, a, a great, just quick, spiritual application that, that I wrote down here. Those, and this, this comes from chapter one and chapter four, which I'll explain. Those who refuse their, their God-given responsibility oftentimes forfeit their future significance. Those who refuse their God-given responsibility oftentimes forfeit their future significance. And think about it. We're getting an example here, which I'll talk about in a second, but go back to chapter one. Remember, we have this, this critical moment here where Naomi is with Ruth and Orpah, and there's a responsibility to care for this widow, Naomi. And these two gals have an opportunity to do that. One does and one doesn't. Orpah turns back and goes to Moab. Do we ever hear of her again? No. Just, fa just falls off. No future significance in the kingdom because she's forsaken her God-given responsibility. Now, was it reasonable for her to go back? Absolutely. She had the privilege of doing that, of starting over. But she forsook the responsibility for the privilege. But Ruth chose Naomi. Now we get Ruth in the lineage of Christ. Future significance. Think about chapter four. Now we have this kinsman redeemer who comes by, who forsakes the responsibility, only wanting the privileges, but forsakes the responsibility. You know what his name is? I don't. He's not even named. He is Mr. No Name. We, we, don't, we don't know who this guy is for the rest of eternity. And we're still talking about Boaz today. I mean, we're going, hey, Boaz is inspiring. Let's be like Boaz. Boaz is a foreshadowing of Christ. <laughs> I mean, he, he accepts his God-given responsibility and has future significance in the kingdom. Don't, don't, you, you can't have only privilege in the kingdom of God. There's a responsibility that comes along with that. And oftentimes, responsibility precedes privilege. And that's not, nobody likes it that way. Nobody, nobody wishes it was that way. Everybody would love it easy. Let's just give me the privilege. I don't want any responsibility. But oftentimes, responsibility comes before privilege. I was thinking about this with, with my boys. As I told you, I think it was last week. I mean, these past three months feel like three years. So I'm having trouble timelining the past few weeks. But I told you that my boys love WWE wrestling, right? And uh, I have had the, I don't consider it a privilege, uh, of the responsibility of wrestling with my boys every night. And, uh, you know, just getting the tar beat out of me all the time. And uh, it, it is not something I necessarily look forward to, although I know that day will end and everybody tells me, Cody, it goes so fast, you know, soak it in. I, yeah, I got it, okay? Just hard to think about when you're getting your kidneys punched, okay? So I, I was thinking about that and how I, I do feel like that's a responsibility of mine uh, as a father. But one of the greatest privileges I have right now uh, that I consider especially with my four-year-old, Hayes, is I love, he's still at that age when I drive up into the driveway that he runs out to, to greet me at the car. I know that will end soon, too. 
But here's what I know, and here's what I've learned, that if I don't put in the work the day before to wrestle with him, then he's not gonna come out and run out and greet me at the car. I don't have that privilege. The, the way I want to be greeted is dictated by the way they've been treated the day before. I've gotta live today in light of the way I wanna be treated tomorrow. I've got to accept the responsibility so that I can reap the benefits tomorrow, which is obviously very biblical. You, you reap what you sow. And if I wanna sow Hayes being excited that I come home, why is he excited? Because he wants to punch me in the kidneys. But for that moment of bliss that I get that, I'm thankful for it. But where did that come from? Him punching me in the kidneys the day before. That's, that's, what, I got, that's what I get to take. And it's just, a, it's just a biblical principle. We don't just get the privileges. You also have to accept the responsibilities that therefore then lead to the privileges. Third, spiritual comebacks are built on people who, uh, just like Boaz, live out their faith overtly in public forums. They live out their faith overtly in public forums. I, I love how Boaz takes, uh, you know, talking about taking the bull by the horns, but I love how Boaz takes the bull by the horns and he announces this decision. He announces the decision to everybody like, hey, here's what's gonna happen. One, because he's a man of integrity, because now he's free and clear to go about uh, you know, marrying Ruth and to inheriting the land, etc. But he, he does a good job of announcing that, but I want to point out something to you. It says, then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi, listen, this is key, all that belong to Elimelech, all that belong to Chilion, and all to Malon. Remember, Malon and Chilion are his children, Elimelech's children, sickly and weakly. That's these boys who died in Moab. But he announces this that, hey, I'm going to redeem their land, their inheritance. And this is the last time that we hear those names. We don't hear about them anymore because this is the bow that is tied. The comeback is now complete, that he is going to now redeem their land. And we get a great contrast where he announces this to all the city councilmen that are there at the, the, the gate. And we get a great comparison and contrast of who Elimelech is and who Boaz is at this time. I put a chart on your sermon notes that I want you to look at because it's a stark contrast when we start thinking about what we can do as we lay down our life for our families and are we putting our families in the best spots. When you look at Elimelech, his name means my God is king. But he didn't live like it. He didn't live like he trusted God. Remember, when it famine time hit, he ran to a foreign nation that worshiped foreign gods. And he did, doesn't sound like he did a great job from things I'll mention here later in the chart of putting God first in everything that they did. So he said, my God is king, but he didn't live like it. He only had it on his lips, but he didn't have it in his heart. But what does Boaz's name mean? Boaz means his strength is within him, that he had, he had trust, he had conviction, he had integrity. He didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. He lived it out. And that Elimelech walked by sight, walked to Moab to where he saw there was food, but Boaz always walked by faith. Elimelech followed his physical needs. Boaz followed God's law spiritually. 
Elimelech acted on the impulses that he had to, to leave and to go and run away quickly, but Boaz acted with integrity, especially in chapter three. Elimelech was comfortable with compromise, but Boaz ran away from compromise. And you go, how was Elimelech comfortable with compromise? Uh, think about what he did with his family. When, when he takes his family, when he takes Naomi and Ruth, uh, I mean, uh, Naomi and Malon and Chilion down to Moab, he all of a sudden compromises everything about their spiritual life. I mean, they have no fellowship with other believers. There, there are no other Yahweh worshipers down there. And he's like, honey, you know, just find friends. You know, go be a light in the darkness, you know. He, to, to his boys, I mean, what, what do they have as friends? Just, there's... All the friends around are, they worship foreign gods. This Shamash, God, that's in Moab. They don't worship Yahweh. And he just lowers the bar and ends up lowering the bar for his entire family. Because when it comes time for those boys to marry, he starts saying, well, you know, there are no other Yahweh worshipers around here. So you're just gonna have to marry Moabite women, boys. And the whole bar gets lowered for his family of just go along to get along not putting their, the best spiritual-minded condition, laying that foundation for them, but just doing what's immediate, walking by sight, not by faith, lowering the bar, being comfortable with compromise. Boaz is exactly opposite. He sets the bar for his family. I mean, you think about, think about the stories that, that, that are passed on from Boaz's life to Obed, to Jesse, to, to King David. I mean, this is all based on Hey, when we walk with integrity, you know who didn't leave Bethlehem? Boaz. Boaz trusted that God would provide for him. Boaz stayed there. He kept his family in a good place. He considered their spiritual condition. He trusted that God would provide for them, that God would get them through this. Stark contrast here. And now, everything that Elimelech has built his life on is now transferred over to Boaz. It's not, it's not lasting. It doesn't last when we walk by sight. It doesn't last when we lower the bar. It doesn't last when we compromise or get comfortable with compromise. Those things fade and fizzle. What lasts is the integrity. What lasts is raising the bar. And he does that in public. He does that so everybody knows, everybody sees what he's doing. And we've got to continue to think about ways we can live out our faith in public. Not being obnoxious, but Doug Cecil always uses this phrase, a, a, a way to raise the flag, just to, just to show people that we are believers, whether that's on the ball field, in the workplace. Even in your home, are you raising the flag? Raising the flag with your relatives. How are you saying, hey, this is who I am and this is what I'm about? Not in an obnoxious way, but in a way that says, strength is within me. I, I, I am a God follower. And then finally, spiritual comebacks are built on people who support others from the sidelines to build future generations. They support others from the sidelines to build future generations. I, I, I think this is so interesting, the way that we've all, all you've heard about in chapter three is that, hey, Boaz is the redeemer. Boaz is the redeemer. Boaz is the redeemer. And he goes through and he fulfills the requirements of the law to redeem Ruth and Naomi. But then I want you to look at verses 14 and 15. Look at, that, look at these verses. 
It says, then the women said to Naomi, we get a scene back. Remember, remember chapter one when Naomi comes back to Bethlehem and all of her friends gather around and she's unrecognizable and they're like, ooh, what happened to you? And she said, don't call me Naomi, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara, call me bitter. And she has this scene with her friends. Now we get a new scene with her friends. Again, tying the boat, completing the comeback. They say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. There's that word again. And may his name be renowned in Israel. And when it says his name, who are you thinking? Boaz, of course. That's who we've been talking about, it's the redeemer. No, no, no. He, this redeemer, shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Who's he talking, who's, who's this talking about? This isn't Boaz. This is Obed. That's who they're talking about. Bless you, Naomi, because you now have a redeemer, not Boaz. Boaz moves to the sidelines. Boaz lays down his life. Boaz risks his future. Boaz lays down his inheritance to be a foundation, to change the spiritual trajectory to set up now Obed for future generations. That's who they're talking about that will be a redeemer. That's who they're talking about who will provide for Naomi. And he becomes this, he changes the trajectory and then we get Jesse and we get David and ultimately Christ. And dads, that's what we do. I mean, that's what God has called us to do. Is there's a time when we don't we, we aren't on the field playing anymore. We're not the we're not the main players where we step back and we go, I've got to cheer you on from the sidelines. How can I do that? Uh, there's been something I've been trying to tell Dax this just about every night. Dax is our eight-year-old. Every night I try to tell Dax, I ask Dax, Dax, what is your job? And he says, and we've, we've talk, talked through this, so this has become a mantra. I say, Dax, what's your job? And he says, to follow Jesus. And I said, yes. And I say, what is my job? And he says, to help me do that. And I said, yep. Dax's job is to follow Jesus. My job is to help him do that, however I can. He's gonna be on the field. He's gonna be in fields that I will never be in. He's gonna be around people I will never talk to but I've got to cheer him on from the sidelines and lay down my life now to change his trajectory, to start making him a blessing to other people around him, just the way that Obed was gonna bless Naomi. But that's our role. We've gotta change that for future generations. So who are you cheering on in your spiritual life? Who, who are you saying, you can go further? You can go, you can go so much farther than I've gone and I'm cheering you on. Go, 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 go bless people. How can I help you do that? Who are you cheering on? Dad's easy application, cheering on your kids, obviously. But all of us can do that in our spiritual lives because that's what Boaz did for, the, for them, for the entire family, laid down his life so that they could have hope and a future. And remember, this unfailing love, this is all about what Jesus did. That's all this is. Boaz is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus did for us what Boaz did for Naomi and Ruth. Naomi and Ruth were helpless and hopeless, wandering around in a foreign land. That was us, hopeless and helpless. And we found refuge in him. We needed redemption. So God laid down his life through his blood. We can now be redeemed to him, restored back to him. 
He made it very public what he did for us. The same way Boaz made it public, Jesus died on the cross publicly to bring us to him. Just the way that Boaz welcomed Naomi and Ruth into his home, Jesus welcomes us. He says in John 14, 6, I'm making a place. I'm preparing a place for you, a place in eternity. Boaz is just a foreshadowing of Jesus. And only through Jesus can our spiritual comeback be complete. <laughs> He's already written the story. The victory is already won. It's just, are we following his story? Have we placed our trust in the Redeemer, into him? And are we living the way that he's called us to, in the way that we would do exactly what he would do for us, where we lay down our life for somebody else? Because that's what he said that he did in John chapter 12, verse 24. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, then it remains alone. You're not gonna do anything by yourself. It's only gonna, you can only have the impact that you wanna have if you invest in, but if it dies, if it lays down its life, then it bears much fruit. And when Boaz laid down his life, we see the fruit. We see the family tree that comes behind. And so my encouragement for you, especially dads, dads, lay down your life as the foundation for somebody else's spiritual story. Say, man, your job is to follow Jesus and my job is to help. How can I do that? How do I help you? You're obviously doing it now. You've, you're, you're sheltering your family in God's word. You're trying to help them understand it. You're trying to teach it and you're trying to walk it out. God bless you. Love you. I hope you're encouraged. Hope you're inspired to continue to do that, to live like Christ. That was just, Boaz was just a foreshadowing of Christ and I know his spirit will empower you to do that. So let me pray for us. God, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for this narrative that shows us that in the end, the comeback can be complete. Victory is won. And there is a bow on all of those things that seemed like a mess. Thank you that you cheer us on through your spirit. But ultimately, you want us to trust in you. So guide us, please. Give us the faith to lay down our life. And Lord God, change our family's spiritual trajectory in a way that impacts our generation, generations to come, and ultimately the kingdom of God. We ask it, please, in Jesus' name, amen.